You know, when I was a kid growing up, I was fascinated with a show on television called The Price is Right. Uh, I don't know how many of you watch The Price is Right these days. Uh, it's hosted by Drew Carey. But back in the day, I'm talking like way back when the dinosaurs lived, literally before there was internet, the show was hosted by a legendary game show host named Bob Barker. I don't know what you remember of Bob Barker. If you do, to me, uh, I remember, aside from the occasional guest appearance in the odd Adam Sandler movie, um, Bob Barker had this perfectly quaffed hair and for some reason impressed upon me the importance to help control the pet population by having my pets spayed or neutered. Uh, Bob, Bar Bob Barker, though, if you know, uh, didn't work alone. He had a sidekick named Rod Roddy. And what Rod Roddy's job was, was to do was to invite people from the live studio audience into participating as a contestant on the show, on The Price is Right. And so Bob would shoot to Rod to invite up the next contestant. And Rod Roddy became famous for saying the person's name and then saying, if you know it, you can shout it out loud at your location. He would say, come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. Come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. And I used to watch this show and I used to wonder with amazement what it would be like to have your name called by Rod Roddy. To hear your name and then to hear, come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. And then one day, a person that I actually knew had that experience for themselves. Now this goes way back. It's in the days of VHS land and the footage is crude, but I wanted you to, to check this out. We're going to look at a, a short video of the opening of an episode of The Price is Right. Pay attention to the fourth contestant invited to play the game by Rod Roddy. Check this out. CBS in Hollywood, television's most exciting hour of fantastic prizes. The fabulous 60-minute price is right. Jimmy Bell Bowser, come on down. Yes. on The Price is Right. And now, here is the star of The Price is Right, Bob That was from 1998 when an 18-year-old, Drew Unruh, known to Rod Roddy as Andrew Unruh, a longtime church member and Southridge staffer of the last three or four years, was actually called by Rod Roddy to become a contestant on The Price is Right. I was floored when I first heard about this, that a person I actually knew got his name called to be a contestant on that show. And uh, just so we're clear, uh, Drew works these days in our media department. He did not superimpose a younger version of himself on that episode of the show. He actually got called by Rod Roddy 
to be a contestant on The Price is Right. Now, for some of you who had never seen the episode or don't know what happened, I wouldn't want to leave you hanging. So I, I brought along a few other clips today of how Drew did participating as a contestant in the show. Um, for those of you f familiar with The Price is Right, you know that the first thing that happens in this group of four called Contestants Row is they bid on a prize to try to win their way on stage to actually play the rest of the game. And so in this next clip, Drew and company are bidding uh, on a brand new cappuccino maker. Check it out. Sonia, what do you bid on that prize? $3.99. She bids $399. Cor $4.50. $4.50, Andrew. $500. He bids $500. Now, Talina. $275. $275. Actual retail price, $1,400. right over here I want you right there absolutely incredible so he wins his way out of contestants row and actually into the game of the prices right gets on stage gets to meet Bob Barker and gets to play for another set of prizes now again if you know the show you're hoping for you know certain prizes to be able to play for and the ultimate prize as described by Rod Roddy that you can win as a contestant on the price is right is finish the sense again a new check out this next clip there because we're going to show you some prizes beginning with what how would you like to have uh, this new car $60. Andrew has won himself a mower. Now, Andrew, you have one, two, three, four, five, six chances to win the car. In the price of the car, there are five numbers. Using all five of those numbers, write down the price of that car. $18,490. Andrew! right over there. We'll be back after this. At this point, this is one of the craziest things that I have ever seen on television. But you got to know it didn't stop there because in The Price is Right, you know that the contestants who actually get to play the game then get to spin this wheel and the winners in the first half and the back half of the show of this wheel spinning competition get to participate in the final challenge uh, called the Showcase Showdown. And so I want to show you Drew and the other winning contestants' uh, experience of spinning this wheel. Check this out. But Andrew here, fine fellow that he is, if he wins $11,000, is going to pay off his parents' credit card. That's okay. <laughs> Every mother and father in the country will love this boy. In Canada. Yeah. You're, from, you're from Canada. Where are you from? I'm from uh, close to Niagara Falls. It's called St. Catharines. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. Go ahead. It's a spin-off. But he still gets $1,000 if he... And a bonus spin if he gets a dollar, but he won't. But he has to beat a dime, and he will do that. You have 75 cents. You are going to be in the showcase. The showcase follows this announcement. So as an 18-year-old, Drew has actually qualified for the final showcase showdown on The Price is Right. 
And if you're unfamiliar with how this works, the two finalists are left, and the, the person who's won the most value in prizes up to that point is presented with a showcase of massive prizes that they can either bid on or pass for the other contestant to bid on and then the second showcase of massive prizes comes out for the person who hasn't yet bid to bid on and the person with the lowest bid or the closest bid without going over uh, wins this showcase showdown in that sense wins the show and so in Drew's case he he was the first to bid but passed on his first showcase opportunity. It happened to be a ski boat. I wasn't so sure why Drew passed on that, knowing that I've gone wakeboarding with him a number of times, but talking with him this week, he assured me that he was thinking that he was less sure with how to price out you know, luxury boats and expected that the next showcase was going to be a car, and he was more familiar with pricing cars, as evidenced earlier in the show. And so uh, I want to show you the uh, final results of the showcase showdown where Drew had passed on the ski boat but had been bid on a trip all around the world. Check this out. Andrew, your bid is $14,400. And Andrew, the actual retail price of your showcase is $16,149. A difference of $1,749. Good bid. Danny Bell, you bid $18,300. Danny Bell, the actual retail price of your showcase is $31,217, a difference of $12,917. Andrew is the winner. Congratulations, Andrew. Danny Bell, thank you for being on the show. Our visitor from Canada has won $36,589. Bob Barker, reminding you, helped control the pet population. Have your pets spayed or neutered. Bye, buddy. I'm telling you, I could not believe this the first time I heard that Drew Unruh won the entire showcase showdown at 18 years old and won $36,589, which, as an aside, was subject to an immense amount of international taxation. So, not like Drew walked away with that. But... He didn't walk away with nothing, and he got to be part of an extraordinary adventure as a contestant on The Price is Right, if you think about it, all because he got his name called by Rod Roddy to come on down and be the next contestant. You know, as I think about that, I kind of feel like our life of faith often feels to many people like the game of The Price is Right. You know, often it, it feels similar to, way, to the way that that game show works. Because it kind of feels like there are many people in our world interested in faith and kind of seeking out faith and wanting to explore faith and experience faith and even put their faith in Jesus Christ and allow Jesus to be their forgiver and their leader. But then there's this second group, a much rarer group of people that live... Um, a much more spiritually active life, as if they're kind of cooperatives, literally partnering with the God of the universe. And we have a name for this special select group of people that's very similar to the term that we use for contestants in The Price is Right. We refer to this group as a group of people who are called by God. They're called by God. And you have 
lots of people, you know, trying to incorporate faith in their life and trying to experience God and have a spiritual aspect to the way that they live. But then there's this this rarer group of people who seem to live with this purpose and significance and meaning because of a clear sense of the calling of God on their life. And for someone like me, it kind of makes me ask the question, like, what's the difference between those groups of people? And very similar to what I would have asked in watching The Price is Right, and especially when I watched Drew on there, you know, how do you get to be a person that's called? How do you get called? And The Price is Right, was it because Drew was wearing orange pants that he got called? Was it the guy's sailor uniform that, that, or Marine's outfit that, that got him called? Like what, what, what are the criteria or the conditions that get you called? I think people wonder that spiritually. Because this whole idea of being called by God is so mystical and so nebulous and so kind of undefined that it leaves us wondering how to get called, how to experience the calling of God on your life. And the net result is that we have some people in the world of faith who live with this incredible reality of the calling of God on their lives. And the rest of us kind of well, kind of applauding them as, in some sense, a faith-based studio audience. Thought about this a little bit and feel like part of the reason this is, is because for a good part of the Bible, in fact, for much of the Old Testament, which is more than half the Bible, um, this dynamic actually existed, where among the community of faith, among God's family... Some people were called by him while others weren't. And that rarer breed of people who got to enjoy the calling of God on their lives, by and large, were invited and called by God into a very specific function, what the Bible refers to as the priesthood. Take a look at what it says in Exodus chapter 30. God says to Moses, anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. This is God talking to Moses uh, to set aside his sidekick Aaron for this special role that God intends called a priest. And for Aaron and his male descendants after him, they are going to form this kind of rare group of people called the priesthood because of the calling of God on their lives. Now, if you're unfamiliar with priests and what God intended them to do, priests were basically intended by God to be mediators, not to be confused with the more carnivorous version, the meat eater. We're talking mediator, okay? A mediator was basically a middleman, a go-between. They were a broker of the relationship between God and people. And in that sense, that two-way relationship demanded two functions of a priest. On the one hand, um, priests represented God to people. Priests were the only people, for example, who could enter into certain sacred rooms of the Jewish temple or the uh, worship tent called the tabernacle before that because it was in those sacred places where it was believed that God's spiritual presence dwelt. 
And uh, a normal Israelite was made holy only through the reading and the teaching of the word of God when it happened by a priest. Because a priest was deemed to kind of be an ambassador of God, a representative of God's behalf on earth. They represented God to, to people. At the same time, they represented people to God. Um, only priests and only when they'd gone through purification ceremonies um, could they touch the worship instruments to ascribe worship on behalf of people to God. And only priests could take people's, you know, animal and whatever other sacrifices and give them on behalf of people to God. Uh, it was viewed in those days that people were just too sinful to be relating to God himself. And so God instituted this middleman called a priest who represented people to God and represented God to people. That was the, the, the role that priests played uh, back in the Old Testament. And so as a result, for much of the Bible, throughout the whole Old Testament, we kind of see this sort of two-tiered spiritual class system where there are people trying to live you know, faith-based lives, exploring faith and trying to know God and obey God and live for God and please God. And then there are these special mediating people between God and regular people called priests. And they're special because they get to live with the sense of significance of the calling of God on their lives. Now, I don't know in our day and age, you know, how pervasive that is. I know in uh, certain settings, um, we still have priests today. In other settings, we may use different terminology and refer to that subset of people as, you know, ministers or um, pastors or teachers or maybe missionaries or justice advocates or whatever you call the subset of people that we generally see as living with this pervasive sense of significance and meaning and purpose because they're living with the calling of God on their lives. And even today, I think that in a lot of ways, we find ourselves in kind of a two-tiered spiritual dynamic where some people live with the calling of God on their lives while other people you know, kind of live as a spiritual studio audience. The weird thing about that today, though, is that since the work of Jesus some 2,000 years ago, the scriptures teach us, um, this role of the human priesthood has actually been abolished because of the work of Christ. That in what Jesus did when he came to earth and died and rose again, the need for human priests has been completely eliminated. Take a look at what it says in the New Testament of the Bible in Hebrews chapter 7. It says, unlike other high priests, priests of priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of other people. He sacrificed for other people's sins once for all when he offered himself. See, the scriptures teach that Jesus, once and for all time, perfectly played the role that God intended priests to play. And as a result, we don't need human priests 
anymore. If you think about it, you know, the, the reason that God instituted this priesthood in the Old Testament was because of humanity's sin. And we've talked in an environment like this many times that because of our sin, our relationship with God is fractured and severed. And worse, the bad news is that because of our sin, we're powerless to do anything about it. We can't change that reality ourselves. And so priests were instituted to mediate this relationship between a perfect God and imperfect people like you and me. But the good news of the Bible, and especially the story of the life of Jesus, is that in offering up his sinless life to die for our sin, Jesus perfectly paid the penalty for your sin and mine and all of humanity once and for all. And so when you and I receive the forgiveness of Jesus by put, putting our faith in what he did on the cross and dying for us, when we exercise our faith in him, our relationship with God can be restored. And now, brokered by him and his saving, forgiving work on the cross, you and I can relate to God directly. We don't need a human mediator anymore because Jesus and his forgiving and saving work mediates on our behalf. That's why in the New Testament it says things like this. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says there is now only one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. The good news of the Bible is that through Jesus' work, anyone, no matter who we are or what we've done, can receive forgiveness for our sin if we put our faith in Christ and what he's done on our behalf. And the cool thing is that when we do, we can experience a relationship with God that is direct and personal and intimate. And we no longer need a human go-between because Jesus plays the role of that go-between in a perfect and once-for-all and ongoing way. Because of the work of Christ, because of his sacrificial death for our sin, we don't need priests anymore. Now, if that isn't cool enough, there's actually a second implication of the work of Christ that's probably more relevant to our conversation today because not only did Jesus die on the cross to forgive our sin, Jesus also rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, he made his spiritual life available to invade the lives of forgiven believers so that people who've put their faith in him are not just forgiven, but also empowered. And in being empowered, what that means is we now have the resources to live in the way that God's always intended, to live in the way modeled by Jesus when he walked the earth, so that as we continue to put our trust in Christ, we can increasingly live the way Jesus lived when he walked the earth. If you think about it, since one of the behaviors of Jesus is playing this mediating role on behalf of people, one of the implications of the availability of the life of Jesus in people is that now other people in the strength and power of his spirit can play that mediating role as well. And so while the scriptures teach that the work of Christ on the one hand has completely abolished the need for the priesthood. On the other hand, it describes the work of Christ as completely unleashing it across every single person who's putting their trust in Christ. That's what it means when it says this in 2 Peter chapter 2. It says there, like living stones, 
you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You, and he's talking about a, a group of people, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter's doing is contrasting the experience of a follower of Jesus Christ before and after they put their trust in Jesus. And he's saying that now that they've put their trust in Christ, now that they've received his forgiveness and been invaded by his resurrected living spiritual presence, they are capable of living just like Jesus. And since Jesus plays this mediating, perfect priestly role to people, other people can play that as well. Other people in Christ's power can be priests to one another, what he calls a royal priesthood. Other people... Ordinary garden variety followers of Jesus Christ because of the life of Christ and his spiritual presence within us can be representatives on God's behalf participating in the work that God is doing in the world. And I want you to notice how Peter describes that group of people because he makes a specific comment there in the middle there. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And he's not just saying that all believers can experience the phenomenon of being included by God in this function of being his ambassador and representative like a priest. He's also saying that all believers have been chosen to do that. That in the same way that Aaron and his sons in the Old Testament were called by God to serve as priests, now all believers, because of the work and presence of Christ in their lives, all believers, every single person of faith in Jesus Christ can live with the reality that they have been called by God. That's an extraordinarily bedrock truth, especially in the New Testament of the Bible. That every single believer, not some special nebulous group of believers, every single believer has a spiritual calling of God on their lives. That's why the Apostle Paul is one example, writing to an entire church, an entire community of believers in Rome back in his day, says this in Romans chapter 1. He says, to all the believers in Rome who are loved by God, and called by him to be his holy people. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Again and again and again in the scriptures, it cements the idea that all believers, every single believer in Jesus Christ, has a unique, significant, spiritual calling of God on their lives. And many of the times that it affirms this, especially in the New Testament, I think many of us miss because of some difficult to translate terminology in the English language. Because many of the passages that affirm this, uh, especially the one, or, or as an example, the one that we looked at in 2 Peter, um, use the plural version of the English word 
you. Peter's saying, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. And he's not talking about you, an individual. He's talking about you, everybody. And, and I feel like sometimes what we do if we're reading the Bible, especially in the New Testament, and we're seeing these verses, we're assuming that maybe, you know, this author is writing to some individual you that doesn't happen to be me or individually you. And because they're not writing specifically to us, then it doesn't directly apply to us. When the truth is that many times the authors of the New Testament are writing to the plural you, referring to all believers in Christ, referring to every one of you and me and us together when we've put our trust in Jesus. And those you words are probably more accurately in our context translated into more awkward, you know, nails scratching on the chalkboard kinds of words like y'all or my favorite use the message of the new testament is that y'all can be forgiven by jesus no matter who y'all are or what y'all have done and as a result y'all can experience a personal and direct intimate relationship with god y'all don't need human mediators or priests to broker them and as a result, used guys and gals can be invaded by the spiritual life and presence of Jesus. And because of that, used guys and gals can behave like Jesus. And used guys and gals can be included with God in his eternity-altering work in the world. And as a result of that, used guys and gals can live with the incredible significance and meaning and purpose of realizing that used guys and gals and us together are called by God. If you're taking notes today, you want to put the big idea down, I apologize, but write this down. That as a result of Christ's work, use can be used by God. Use can be used by God because the good news of the implications of Christ that allow all of us to be part of this royal priesthood of people who live with the calling of God on our lives applies to every person who's put their trust in. In Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that this morning, even hearing that, there are some of us who are doubting that. Some of us who are right now too skeptical to believe that or too insecure to buy that that could actually really apply, you know, to, to you or to me. That, you know, we're feeling right now like we're, we're too broken or have been too disobedient or are just too scarred and stained by sin to actually consider ourselves called by God. Or maybe we feel like we're too unspectacular or not healthy or able enough or we don't know enough about God or Jesus or the Bible or we're not talented enough to really consider the notion that the God of the universe has a calling on our lives. And if that's you today, all I want to say is this, that according to the scriptures, the kingdom of God functions very differently than the price is right. The kingdom of God functions very differently than the price is right. The way that God's activity in the world today works is very different than the way that God was at work as we read in the Old Testament through what we read in the priesthood. 
because of the work of Christ, on the one hand, the role of a human priest has been abolished. On the other hand, all believers can be activated and invited into the activity of priests and serve each other and the lost and broken world around us as God's ambassadors being invited by him in his strength to make extraordinary, supernatural, eternal differences in people and in the condition of our world. That every single believer has a calling of God on their lives. There is no more two-tiered system where some mystical subset has some nebulous calling and the rest of us kind of give the golf clap as the spiritual studio audience. Every single believer in Jesus Christ, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done, can enjoy the wonder and the meaning and the significance of being called by the God of the universe. I'm not understating it to say that when, when I first absorbed this idea, this, this theological concept, it's more technically known in seminary land as the priesthood of all believers. When I first kind of really grabbed hold of this, um, in a lot of ways it changed everything for me. Uh, I had grown up uh, since little kid um, in the church. I actually grew up in this church. But for much of my growing up years in church and faith experience, would have considered myself part of the faith studio audience. And it was only after university when I was spending my time focused as a competitive long-distance runner that while I was starting to take my faith more seriously... I was awakened to the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection and awakened to this idea called the priesthood of all believers and awakened to the reality that every believer in Jesus Christ had a calling of God on their lives. And in spite of what I had done, in spite of the choices that I'd made, that included me. And I'll tell you, when I began to wrap my head and heart around the idea that the God of the universe... You know, the, the Rod Roddy of heaven was calling my name and saying, come on down. I want to include you as a participant, as a partner with me in my eternity altering activity in the world. Um, it, it, it blew me away. And I couldn't not change and make choices in that direction because I felt like God was offering me the opportunity to get out of bed for stuff way more significant with way more legacy than just getting out of bed to literally, in my case, run in circles faster and faster. And over the course of this next month, you got to know that it's my prayer and the prayer of our leadership around here that Many of us across our locations, dozens and hopefully hundreds of us, will be as gripped and as ravaged and find it as inescapable to not radically change as I did when we come to realize the calling of God on our lives. Because in this next month, we're going to spend, not just this week, but the three sub subsequent Sundays from this morning digging into the mystery and the nebulousness of this idea of being called by God. 
we're going to look into, you know, what a calling of God is and, you know, what God calls people of faith to. What's he calling us to be and to do and to learn how to determine that and how to discern some of the unique contours of God's calling on each individual personal life. We're going to consider some of the implications of the calling of God on our lives. All of the whatabouts once we start considering that God is actually calling us. But for today, I, I just want us to camp out and to take some moments to absorb this fundamental biblical reality that the God of the universe, not because of what you and I have done, but only because of Jesus Christ, even if we haven't yet put our trust in Jesus Christ, God is calling you. He's calling you in to an incredible adventure to not only be forgiven, but to be included by him in his eternity-altering work in the world. To give us a meaning and purpose and significance that we've never known, that otherwise we can't experience as we get out of bed with this incredible feeling of being called by the God of the universe. So starting right here, right now, and over the course of the next month, I want, you to, I want to invite you to begin to absorb that reality that the kind of rod roddy of heaven, the God of the universe, is calling you, not just us together, calling you into something incredible. And to begin to consider how and whether you will answer the amazing call of God on your life. Let's pray together. Well, God in heaven, we uh, often close prayers by saying, in Jesus' name. And we do that knowing the role that Jesus plays as our mediator. Thankful that because of Jesus, we can relate to you. And today, I hope thankful that because of Jesus, we can partner with you. We can be included by you. We can serve you and serve with you and be empowered and resourced by you for incredible things to make world-changing differences all over the place. And because of Jesus, we can experience your calling on our lives. God, I pray that for every person here today who's exploring faith or who has already engaged in faith, that you would impress on our hearts a very personal and very deep sense that you are, in fact, as you teach in your scriptures, calling us. That you have a unique and extraordinary, special and wonderful calling on each of our lives and on us together as a community. And I pray your blessing on this next month and this journey as we explore and discover that to a greater degree, not for our sake, but so that we can be a blessing to you and to this kingdom, this spiritual society that you're building on earth through the work of Christ and his death and resurrection. I pray all these things as we always do, in his name as our perfect and ultimate mediator. Giving you thanks, saying we love you. Amen.